Welcome to FinTech at Kellogg, a podcast that sheds light on the innovative people, ideas, and technology that are transforming the financial services landscape as we know it. I'm your host, Farron Meldrum-Taylor, and today I'm joined by my co-host, first-year knowledge director, Julia Osorio, as we sit down today with Abhishek Ravi, Triple M Class of 2020, to discuss his work at Visa in Singapore and innovation in the payments industry. Abhishek, thank you so much for joining us today on FinTech at Kellogg. We are so excited to have you here. To get us started, could you share a little bit about your career and how you ended up working in FinTech? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. So I actually got into FinTech by a bit out of chance. I was at the National University of Singapore for undergrad. And then as I was about to graduate, I'd applied to a number of different tech companies. And Visa happened to be one of them. I was super fortunate to get into their graduate development program. So I had a chance to spend six months in different functions of the organization and really learn how each function operates. That's when I think I got bitten by the fintech bug and really realized the impact that fintech had both on emerging as well as developed markets. I really enjoyed tackling these different challenges what different markets posed. And as I continued working at Visa and seeing the impact that the work, not only I, but the rest of the company had on people around me, as well as really helping people in these countries lead better lives and pay in nicer ways. I was really inspired to continue not only working in fintech, but also inspired to really make the world a better place through fintech. Can you describe a little bit more the different roles that you had at Visa? Yeah, absolutely. So I started off as a research engineer, given my background in computer science. I spent about six months writing machine learning algorithms to detect fraud and learned a ton of things about how fraud is calculated, how you potentially calculate scores, how a number of different parameters can actually go into instantly evaluating whether a transaction is actually fraudulent or not. For example, if you as a US US citizen with a US issued credit card is making a transaction in Nigeria one second and then seconds later making a transaction in another part of the world, say in Brazil, there's a high chance that it could potentially be fraud. And by looking at millions of transactions, I actually found that you're able to very, very accurately predict this. So this was a big realization right at the start. And then I soon wanted to progress into actually applying these skills that I picked up. So slowly moved over from the research engineering aspect into a more product management type role and ultimately spent my last few years at Visa was focused very heavily on conceptualizing and deploying digital payment products. So if you've used Apple Pay here in the US, I helped bring that to Singapore. If you've used Google Pay or Android Pay, that was one of the products I helped launch as well. And there are a few other products which are a bit more Southeast Asia centric. So if you think of the likes of QR code payments where you can pull out your phone and scan a QR code or the likes of person to person payments, think of Venmo, but more catered to Southeast Asia. So these are some of the other products which I really enjoyed launching because I was able to cater the infrastructure and the technology that these products require to the technology that is supported by these different markets. I know we all appreciate your work in fraud (laughs) management. What were some of your biggest challenges and where did you learn the most in your PM role? So one thing which I had taken for granted right off the bat is that I expected and assumed every bank in Southeast Asia to be very well technically staffed and 
have sort of the latest technical infrastructure. I was quite shocked to find that many of their systems were so legacy that they were actually written in programming languages that were meant for the 60s or the 70s. And just out of the amount of risk and IT upgrades that were required, a lot of projects that could have potentially been launched with these banks were actually discarded because they weren't the most agile banks. So this was a big learning for me because I had to then, before proposing a product or a new solution for a market, there was actually a ton of homework to be done in terms of evaluating what are the core technical capabilities of a bank, what are the technical capabilities of Visa, and how these two can work together in order to actually serve consumer needs. So there was a lot of hackiness involved in terms of building layer on top of layer, which in the short run may have added to a bit of the technical debt that these banks are experiencing. But ultimately, that was what was required to actually launch a solution like mobile phone payments when you're running on infrastructure that was built in the 70s and the 80s. So you're saying mm-hmm. traditional financial institutions are not technologically savvy. I'm so shocked. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you worked on projects like QR codes. That's something that we really don't do much of here in the mm-hmm. U.S. Would you say when it comes to digital payments and mobile payments that Southeast Asia is more advanced than the U.S.? Yeah, I would say Southeast Asia has uh, has a context and has a landscape for which QR code payments can actually thrive in. And possibly that is a solution which works well in Southeast Asia given the landscape. And it might not actually be the best tailored product for the US. So the main reason or the main purpose behind launching a QR code based payment is the fact that printing and sticking a QR code at a small medium business costs them about a dollar or a dollar and a half to produce a very fancy QR code. So if I want to open a coffee shop tomorrow, I can get started by just investing a dollar and a half and I could accept digital payments instantly. Now, if you compare that to the US, I would have to, even if I were to procure a cheap terminal from the likes of Square, I would still have to pay about a hundred or $150, which a lot of small businesses in the US can afford, but you can't expect a small roadside stall as in the streets of Hanoi to actually be willing to pay $150 just to accept digital payments. So if in that aspect, I think QR code is a product which is a lot more well suited for emerging countries where there is a challenge to start, where there's a challenge to invest money to start accepting payments. Second, I would also say that people in Southeast Asia and also China have been trained well in the art of scanning QR codes. Now, a few years back, WeChat in China helped customers get used to the practice of taking out their phone and scanning each other's QR code because that was how you added each other as friends on their social network. So people were already well-versed in what a QR code was and how you actually go about scanning them. So when you actually translate that into making a payment, people seemed very, very comfortable. And this helped QR codes pick up in not only China, but also Hong Kong. And now we're seeing this grow in Vietnam, Thailand, and Cambodia. Whereas in the US, people are still used to a web interface. So even when Facebook did actually launch a QR code in your profile where I could scan your QR code and add you as a friend, not many people would use this because I was more used to searching your name and actually typing it in. So for these couple of reasons, I feel Southeast Asia is a much better suited environment for QR code payments. And people or rather the different banks and different fintechs in the industry know what works well in this market and have innovated upon that. Uh, So you mentioned QR codes and a little bit of the context there. What are some key trends that you saw there like particular to the Southeast Asia market um, besides that? Yeah, so 
when QR code actually launched in India, for example, there were a ton of very interesting things we noticed. So right off the bat, we found India was a country where customers weren't used to scanning QR codes. Because if you're standing in line at a supermarket with four people in front of you, five people behind you, all of them panting and puffing, waiting for you to finish paying so they can buy their goods. It's a very intimidating environment to take out your phone for the first time, work with bad internet connection, try to download an app, and then put your phone at different camera angles in front of a QR code and actually try to scan it and then pay. There is so much of hindrance from a customer experience point of view, unless you're actually used to this. So we've learned that, for example, grocery stores or public places where there are big queues are possibly not a great experience for trying out QR code payments for the first time. Instead, one use case which worked really well was cable television top-up. So in India, if you want to watch a particular channel on TV, this is actually prepaid. So you would pay, for example, say 100 rupees at the start of the month and you would have access to the channel for one full month. Now, during the World Cup, for example, I think in 2014 or uh, the Euros in 2016, because of the time difference at 12 a.m. midnight, Often people would lose access to their TV because the day had ended. So by that extension, the month had ended, people had lost access to the channel. So rather than calling their cable operator and asking them to physically top up money so that they could watch TV, what a number of uh, banks did was actually they put a QR code and for Tata Sky, who is the cable TV provider, they actually put a QR code on your television screen. So users sitting in the comfort of their home in a nice air conditioned environment with a phone that is connected to strong Wi-Fi network could actually fiddle around by downloading an app for the first time and try scanning a QR code and actually making a payment. And we found that this comfortable environment to make your first payment QR code transaction actually sparked a lot more interest and a lot more comfort with a technology like this. So in India, this was a big this was a big trend and this was sort of expanded into buying your railway tickets or buying flight tickets through QR codes became really popular. And once people were more comfortable buying things through QR codes in a remote environment, they became more comfortable actually using QR codes in a face-to-face environment, if that makes sense. Did you spend a lot of time before launching new products in different markets on this user experience research and trying to understand what people were comfortable with and what was going to be new to them? Or was this an after-the-fact discovery? So that's a great question because this was a mix of both. There were a set of rules or set of steps that were followed before launching a product to understand market fit. But there was also a ton of learnings after every product launch what we incorporate and make sure that we imbibe in our in our next product launch. So for example, there was one product we were looking to launch with a bank where people could actually authenticate themselves in a more seamless experience. And we thought of adding in a feature where you could log on with, for example, your Facebook or Gmail or LinkedIn, which is very secure to log on with. But from a customer experience point of view, when we actually sat down and interviewed customers, we found that they were more than comfortable spending a minute and a half typing in a complex 14-digit, 14-character password, both uppercase, lowercase, with three special characters and a number in a particular order, because it gave them a sense of security. While logging on with Facebook, for example, is simpler and one-click, When it comes to their banking, we actually, through customer interviews, we found that this is not something that they would be comfortable with. So this is one example of something where actually we learned before launching a product what a customer likes and what they don't like. 
and actually go about launching it. So I think user research and really empathizing with your customer, which is a lot of which is taught at Kellogg through different courses is actually something which many companies value and is extremely important, not only in US, but as you, as you can see, even in a place like Southeast Asia. What besides, and we've talked a lot about the QR code projects that you've been involved in, but what are some other interesting projects that you were involved in at Visa? Sure. So one product which I'm particularly proud of is something we recently, or I don't think it's been launched yet, but something that is in the pipeline for Indonesia. So Indonesia is a very interesting country in the sense that out of 270 million people there, approximately less than 10% actually have a credit card, which means that if you want to pay online, which believe it or not, Indonesia is expected to be the second or the third biggest country for e-commerce over the next two or three years. So if you want to pay online, only 10% of the people currently can make these payments. And this is staggering because the current customer experience, if you want to buy something online, is extremely broken. So there are a few big merchants, e-commerce merchants in Indonesia, the likes of Lazada and Tokopedia, which are as popular or if not more popular than an equivalent of Amazon in the US. Now, however, if, I, if I'm if i in Indonesia and I don't have a credit card with me and I do have a bank account, I actually have to make a physical journey to an ATM to wire money to a merchant. So I go onto my Tokopedia or Lazada website, I buy a few things, add it to my cart, and then at the point of checkout, I get a reference number. I then have to take this reference number and either drive or walk to a nearby ATM and then physically transfer money from my bank account to the merchant's bank account. And if you think about it, I actually have to go through a physical process to buy goods online, which is very, very counterintuitive. So one, some of the work we've been doing in markets like these are seeing if we could actually launch either a digital credit card where you, at the point of checkout, you could get a credit card virtually and then use that to pay for your goods. Or if there's a way to digitally sign up for a credit card and not actually have to go through four hours of traffic and two weeks of waiting time if I actually want to get a credit card to use. So there are, I feel this is very, very important for a country like Indonesia because manufacturing a physical credit card costs about two and a half to four dollars there. And many banks are not willing to give every customer a credit card because not many of them will end up using it. So it actually ends up being a big cost to a bank in a country like Indonesia, given the currency conversion rate. And are there any specific, like interesting projects that you saw from other players in the in the Southeast Asia market? Yeah, I think Southeast Asia is a very very dynamic place because there are so many new players entering the country, entering all these countries at different periods of time. In Indonesia, for example, you might have heard of this company called Gojek, who started off as a competitor to Uber, where you can just simply hail a taxi. Now you can not only hail taxis, but you can also hail tuk-tuks and motorbikes. You can order food, you can order groceries, you can ask someone to come and pick up your laundry, you can order a masseuse to come home and give you a massage. They have expanded from ride hailing to absolutely everything. And one thing what they have done, which is actually very big in the fintech space, is that they've equipped all their taxi drivers with some stash of cash. So you can actually use your in your Gojek driver, and for the US, you can think of it as your Uber driver, as a physical ATM. So you could actually pay him money through the app and then get an extra stash of cash as you're leaving your taxi and go shopping or go for food or wherever you like. So this is one example of someone in Indonesia really disrupting the market. And there are plenty of other examples of those in Vietnam and Cambodia. 
And all of them have a very similar trend you can see. A lot of these fintech companies are modeling themselves after the likes of Alipay and WeChat in China with the hope that they will actually be bought up by them. So if you look at the user experience screens of, say, PyPay, which is that's P-I-P-A-Y, which is a small little fintech in Cambodia, but are now processing about $2 million in volume every quarter. Their user experience is identical to that of Alipay in China. And they offer very similar services, but they just branded themselves slightly differently. They've branded themselves in pink a bit to add a bit of Cambodian flavor to the entire app. But they've learned that by really localizing their product, they've not only built a strong connection with the people of Cambodia, but they're also actively attracting investment from the likes of Alipay and WeChat in China. And this is an example I've given in Cambodia, but you can find similar, very similar players in Indonesia, Vietnam, India, Thailand, and also in Myanmar. That's fascinating. I love that they've built the exit strategy essentially into their product. Yeah. I want to pivot back a little bit more to Visa specifically. What would you say are some of the challenges, if any, in innovation in a big company like Visa? Did you find that it was slow moving or were things pretty fast, especially compared to some of the banks you were working with? Sure. So one thing which is both a bane and a boon for Visa is the fact that Visa strongly adheres to something called a four-party model, which means that almost any product that is launched by Visa has to cater to the four parties of a payment ecosystem, which includes the merchant or the place where you make a transaction, the acquirer, which is the bank who provides services to the merchant, the issuer, which is the bank who provides a credit card or a debit card to you, and then the customer, who is the one who is making the transaction. So this means that every time Visa launches a product, it's always in conjunction with a bank, either an acquiring bank or an issuing bank. So Visa relies very heavily on its partner banks to actually deliver a payment capability to its products. And it's a very similar story if you consider MasterCard or any of the other payment networks. The advantage of this is that they always have strong support from the big banks in any country. But the downside is they're very prone to disruption by new players who come in either from overseas or locally. I would say this is the main hindrance for innovation at a company like Visa, which relies heavily on other parties. But at Visa, and I'm sure they do this at MasterCard and other payment technology companies as well, they found ways to work very closely with their banks and with their partners. So at Visa, there was an innovation center set up where I had the opportunity to spend six months on during one of my graduate rotations, building a number of payment product prototypes and actually trying these out inside the lab. So things like paying with your face or paying with your fingerprint or recreating the Amazon Go experience where you can just walk out of a shop and using Bluetooth and RFID to actually track who you are. And these are different products which we prototyped and innovated on and kept ready for if we actually want to launch this with a client. Another thing which was very, very central to the entire innovation process was something what Visa does called co-creations, where essentially Visa brings in a partner bank and then they spend three days together going through an entire, I think at Kellogg, we call it research design build process, but at Visa it was called the discover design develop process, where you spend the first few days really immersing yourself and understanding the customer and their customer journey. From that, you then ideate different pain points and find out what solutions are that would cater to these. And then you actually look at the technical effort and the investment need to actually build the solution and bring this to life. And this was done over the course of three days. And what this did was really unite different stakeholders from the bank as well as from Visa to launch a product. And the big advantage I found of this was that it eased communication by 10 times. 
no longer do you have to wait for one week for your risk team to give you approval or no longer do you have to wait for six weeks for your technical team to give you estimated impact or redesign technical architecture. It was all done in parallel and by three weeks, you actually shortened down a process which could have taken about three months. Wow, that's different mm-hmm. than I thought it would have been. I want to go back just because something you mentioned there remind me of what you were talking about at the beginning, which was your start in fraud detection yeah. and management. Did you see a lot of issues with fraud with a lot of these different technologies in different countries where you're looking at QR codes or just some of the other payment methods? Yeah. So one thing I would love to highlight is that a customer's perception of fraud is actually very, very different and almost a polar opposite of the actual technology backing it. A lot of people, at least in the US, think that if they are signing a bill on their credit card and they're swiping their credit card, it actually must be more secure than, for example, tapping their card on a terminal or paying through their phone. This is actually counterintuitive because when you swipe your credit card at an ATM or at a terminal, the data is being sent over a technology called magnetic stripe which is extremely easy to skim. So if I actually have a skimming machine there and I place that over the actual card terminal and you swipe your card, I capture your card number and the expiry date and all the other information, which I can use to simulate another transaction and create a lot of fraud. Whereas if you're actually tapping your card on a terminal or paying through Apple Pay, there's a dynamic cryptogram being generated real time which is impossible to replicate. So although it might seem more risky that people could snoop around with a wireless terminal and go around tapping your pocket and people actually believed that contactless payments were not very secure. Counterintuitively, the fraud rates for contactless payments, at least through card duplication, is close to 0%, whereas it's so much higher for magnetic stripe transactions. Very similarly with QR code, people think that what if somebody creates a fake QR code and sticks it there and the money actually goes to a wrong person? Now, again, QR codes are actually much more secure than a normal transaction because in the case of a QR code, you are authorizing the transaction before the money is actually sent. Whereas in a normal credit card transaction, the authorization is only done once the money has already been sent. But this is, again, something which is very hidden from a customer. So from their point of view, they feel a lot more secure when they are signing a piece of paper. And in this day and age, I find it very, very amusing that people think they cannot copy each other's signature. That's fair. I admit to being one of those people who probably (laughs) trusts it a little bit less than I should. Given this challenge of accepting that this could be as secure as our credit cards, do you think we'll reach a point where we don't really have credit cards anymore? There's no piece of plastic. We're just all using our phones for everything. So that is something I think a lot of payment technology companies are not only concerned about right now, but are also actively working towards, which is why, for example, every time you pay through Apple Pay, what you're actually using on the back end is either your Visa card or your MasterCard or your Amex card, which is actually the payment instrument that you're using to make that transaction. There's, of course, a concern amongst different payment technology companies that given the shift towards mobile phones and digital that the card is going to become a thing of the past. At least what I, from my understanding, I still feel this is a few decades away before a card is completely taken out of your wallet. But this shift is slowly happening. I often like to leave my wallet at home because it's quite bulky and I don't have a very nice looking wallet. And I'm able to survive just by using my phone to pay, whether it's ordering stuff from Amazon, whether it's getting an Uber, whether it's buying a coffee, I can do all this to my phone. So it's certainly possible for you to live to stay without a credit card. But 
but I don't think everyone or the entire consumer base is going to be as comfortable and as savvy. That still will take time. But the shift is happening very, very clearly. I wanted to ask one more question. Mm -hmm. What do you see as some of the biggest differences, whether they're better or worse, here in the U.S. with payments versus what you saw in Southeast Asia? Sure, that's a great question. So there are two big differences I would like to highlight. First is I found the entire process to actually get a credit card in the U.S. quite funny. Now, I'm a customer who... In Singapore, I had about nine different credit cards and I gamed the system so well. I had a specific card I used for my Uber, a specific card for coffee, a specific card to shop online, a completely separate card on which I actually could pay rent. And then I had another card what I used every time I wanted to book flights. So I had nine different cards and I was able to not only pay all those bills conveniently, but I, I mean, I was earning money then, but I had these nine different cards which I could use for different purposes and manage conveniently. And I found it ridiculous that after I came to the US, I wasn't even allowed the most basic credit card because I did not have a credit score. This was this might seem fairly straightforward or taken for granted in the US, but there are a ton of companies who in Southeast Asia actually actively deal with the problem of customers not having a credit score. So in the Philippines and Indonesia, for example, large percentage of people don't actually have a credit score and their names are not in the credit bureau. And there are companies like Lendu who actually look at your social media and they say, for example, if you are connected to so many top people and top executives, there's a high chance that you are credit worthy so they can give you a credit card with maybe a smaller credit limit. I found the lack of solutions in the space in the US, especially for an international who's migrating over, quite shocking. Second, I would also want to actually highlight the growth of Venmo in the US. I think it is a fantastic product and it makes it so much simpler for people to actually split bills. It's something which is very, very convenient. In Asia, they've actually taken this to a completely different level. So for example, if I have to add you, Julia, on Venmo, I can search for your name or I can scan a QR code you show me on Venmo and actually pay you money. In Singapore in particular, what all the banks have done is they've actually built a closed payment system where anyone from one bank can pay anybody from another bank just using their phone number or their national ID. And this is a big project which was undertaken and then recently launched and has made the payment process there so much simpler. Very similar in India, they've done a lot of work to standardize and create a central repository of everybody's payment credentials so that person-to-person payments can be done in a much simpler and seamless way. So I'd say that this is something which actually the US were leaders but are now different countries in Southeast Asia very, very quickly catching up. It's interesting. Yeah, the credit scoring issue is a big deal mm-hmm. in the US, not just for international yeah. students, but also for just people here who have a hard time getting and then building credit. It's a crazy black box of calculations that go into it. There are some companies some startups yeah. doing alternative credit scoring in the US, but it certainly has not become mainstream. So yeah. I hope that that's something that becomes more common here in the US because I think the way the current system works is fairly exclusionary to a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, it's a very exciting space. I'm hoping that is innovation in this, at least to make the lives of people moving over to the US a lot simpler. So you're saying you don't have a Chase Sapphire Reserve card? Uh, I had to wait for a couple of hours to get the simple basic blue color Chase debit card. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you don't have the card of Kellogg? Come on. (laughs) Just kidding. Great. Well, I think all this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us here today at FinTech at Kellogg. Yeah, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this and really enjoyed sharing my experience. 
We hope you enjoyed this interview with Abhishek. If you want to learn more about fintech at Kellogg, you can reach us directly at fintechclub at kellogg.northwestern.edu or come check out our Facebook page. And if you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate us on iTunes and click that subscribe button to hear future episodes. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. Until next time.